morning, Bethel. How are we doing? Same voice, different face. <laughs> You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> Christy loves it. Maybe one other person loves it. My kids hate it, and I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, this week has been full. We've had a lot of things happening. I know that we're wrapping up the summer, trying to get to the end of the uh, end of the summer experience. I don't know about you guys, but for us, it has gone by so fast. We didn't even know it happened. And, uh, but we're excited that our kids can get back in some kind of rhythm. Um, we're in Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, we can uh, flip over to chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 15, and we'll um, go through verse 22 this morning as we look at the problem of diagnosis. Um, before we jump into the sermon, uh, we have baptism coming up this, uh, this next month in August, uh, the 21st. If there's anybody that's interested or, or you have some questions about baptism, uh, you can go to our website under the event tab, and you can sign up. Uh, for baptisms there, or maybe just some questions, and we can answer those. Uh, we'd like to walk with you through that. And then also, baby dedication. Uh, God has blessed our church with an overwhelming amount of babies. And uh, I look around, don't know who's next, but there's a lot of people that uh, are going through the process of uh, brand new babies. Uh, the uh, Roberts also, they had a baby this uh, couple weeks ago, and they got to go home from the hospital, if you guys have been tracking them. But uh, we're thankful for uh, the life that God has given us here at Bethel. And then every time we see a kid running around or a baby cry, we love it, because that just means there's life. Yeah, there's a continued life. And so um, baby dedication is going to be on the uh, 14th, I believe. Is that right? 14th. And so if you'd like to sign up for that, you can also do that under our events tab. Um, here at Bethel, we've had a lot of uh, uh, motion and commotion this year, this summer in particular. A lot of people coming and checking out Bethel and, and seeing what this uh, church family is about. And uh, I'll just say it again, our church family is simple. We don't complicate things. It's all about Jesus. Uh, we make sure that we direct all our paths toward Jesus. And whenever there's decisions to be made, whether it's structural systems, whether it's in our lives, we want to make sure like, to ask ourselves, okay, so what does Jesus want me to do um, in this situation? And so that's what our church is all about. Very, very simple. So if you're here for the first time today, um, our prayer is that you find Jesus today. That's our, that's our prayer as we work through the book of Galatians. Um, we're in the series uh, called The Problem Of. As you read through the book of Galatians, Paul has written this to a group of churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and it, it reaches through 2,000 years, and it really touches us today because the human condition is to try to figure out best practices or life hacks in order to be better at something. And so when we look through the, the book of Galatians, we see that this first century church, these churches in this area, they were looking to figure out how to be better at being Christians, how to be better at following Jesus. And this group of Jewish believers or these Jewish um, uh, citizens, they came in and they began to tell them, listen, if you want to be a better Christian, you need to go back and you need to follow and fulfill the law, the law of Moses. And so these new Christians were kind of conflicted because it sounded right, especially if you read the Jewish scriptures. It's, it's pretty clear when the law was given, uh, it was God's plan for the, for the nation. And so the, the New Testament believers or these, these people in Galatia, they began to wrestle with this idea of, okay, so are we to focus on the, pros, the, the promise of Christ or are we supposed to focus on the process of becoming holy? And so they had this real struggle between process and promise. And I think if we fast forward to today, 2,000 years later, we can actually answer the same question or answer at the same doubts. The hardest spiritual discipline that there is is to just be. The hardest spiritual discipline is just resting in Jesus. Because what happens is it takes it out of our human hands. 
there's nothing we can control anymore. There's nothing that we can, we can do in order to be better because Jesus said that he loves humanity. He gave his life for humanity. He gave his, his very flesh and blood for humanity. And he says, just come to me if you're burdened and I'll give you rest. Well, we come to him and we throw all our burdens on him. We're, we're really happy to do that. Well, then we want to backtrack a little bit and then we want to figure out how this process works so we can be better at helping Jesus save us. We may not say that, but in practice, that's what we all do. And today we're going to talk about specifically the problem of diagnosis, because I think what happens is we still think the law is important, and it is, and then we use it as a tool to make us better instead of simply a tool to diagnose the problem of sin. Um, got some questions before we start, just to get your mind thinking about the, pro about the topic. Who in your family... Going on vacation is the planner that maps out every hour, every minute, every second of the excursion or the trip, whether it's a day or a week, you know who you're picking because this person's going to map out the trip. Raise your hand if that's you, if you're the planner. All right, very good. You guys are the ones that cannot have fun unless it's scheduled, right? It has to be scheduled fun in order to do it. Every detail of the trip is mapped out so that it can be enjoyed. And now, here's a recommendation. has nothing to do with Jesus. If you're ever going to do a Disney World trip, find that person and make them map your trip out. Because if it's not that, you're just going to be running around like an idiot and not do anything. Okay? So that is the one case where <laughs> there's many cases that it's good. Okay? So that's not a bad thing. It's really good to have those people in your life because they keep you on target. And in the end, if you let it happen, it's usually more fun. Okay, so who's the fly by to the seat of your pants? We're just going to get up and go. I've got no plans. We're just going to see what happens and whatever comes. All right, look at that. Oh, the majority. Woo, that's me. All right, spontaneous. Now, I've learned that it's a great way to live, and yet sometimes we don't get to do what we want to do because, oh, that took a reservation. Oh, they don't have room in that hotel. Oh, the only thing they have left is this cave in the inn. No room in the inn, you know. It's like you have to plan sometimes in order to get to do what you want to do. And yet there's this weird balance between the two because we can either structure it so much that there's no room for error, there's no room for flexibility, there's no room for fun, or we can go the other direction and just say, wherever the wind takes us, we're going to have fun. And guess what? Both groups have a lot of fun because it fits their personality, it fits their style. Uh, when I was growing up, I've said this maybe once before, but when I was growing up, we, ha we traveled a lot. My parents were missionaries, and we traveled around the country a lot looking for support, and then we went to Central America, and my parents did a really great job every year taking us out of church life onto the beach. But while we were in the States, my dad had it all mapped out just perfectly. Very r little room for deviation. And this one place in Arizona... We would always drive by, and there was a massive sign, and it said, See Dinosaur Tracks. And every time we drive by it, I'd say, Dad, can we go see the dinosaur tracks? No, Ray, we're on a schedule. we got to get where we're going to go. And no, 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 no. Well, <laughs> as I was getting older, and then I was the one driving, we happened to be driving down I-40 and getting over in Arizona, and, oh, dinosaur tracks. Hey, Christy, want to go see dinosaur tracks? She's like, no, that's not on the schedule. We can't go do that. And I was like, well, guess what? And I'm driving, so I turn over. Unfortunately, it was like 5 o'clock. The sun was going down, and we drive up over the mountain and look down, 
and there's this van. It was like an old dilapidated van, kind of scary van, you know, the one that you want to run away from. And we park, and I'm like, hmm, where are these tracks? And these two guys step out of the van, and they come over. You guys here to see dinosaur tracks? Yeah. Well, we'll take you over there. Well, classic blunders, you know. I'm leaving, and I'm walking away, and the further we get from our car, the further we get from our car, Christy's getting stressed out, and I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I messed up here. They show us dinosaur tracks. They show us stuff. They try to sell us these fossils that they were going to dig up out of the ground, and I'm like, eh, this seems illegal. And so I said, we're good, and we hailtailed it back to the car and ran, and I got back to the highway, and I said, hey, Dad, I, now I know why you never turned over to the <laughs> dinosaur tracks. <laughs> I get it. I should have looked at the reviews of this place. It's not very safe. They tried to sell us dinosaur poop. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that in church, but I think it was an egg, but they said it was poop. Anyway, all right. So for, a, so for a person who's always regimented, taking a break seems wrong. Having no plan seems morally wrong. Like, if we don't know where we're going or what we're doing, this is not going to work. And for the person that's always moving uh, and never can sit still, even simply going on vacation and sitting on the beach is too much because it seems like you're cheating on something. And I think what happens when we equate that to our spiritual life, and you look at the church in Galatia, that's where the Galatians were. There was something unsettling about coming to Jesus and him freeing them from all the religious activity, all the scheduled events, the detailed religious practices, and then Jesus said, you're free. There was something hard there. So the hardest spiritual discipline is actually just to sit in grace. It's to sit and experience grace, because we always feel like we have to be doing something. We started this series in January, and then kind of things have been um, kind of been sidetracked for a little bit, but we're back in the book of Galatians. We're going to finish um, over the next month or so, and really the whole message of Galatians is that it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus something makes you right with God, and Jesus's message is very clear. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through him, there's no other way. And yet, as humans, we want to actually have a part of it and control something about it. So Jesus plus is simply adding anything to the good news of Jesus. Anything that is tied to redemption, salvation, acceptance, right standing with God. So what is the good news? Some people say, simply put, Jesus died for me. That's the good news. Some people say, that it doesn't look like good news because death is not good. And if we misunderstand the reason that Jesus died, then we think it was just God being cruel to his own son. So how can I follow a God that would kill his own son? How is that possible? So it seems like a, a struggle for good news, but Jesus loved the world, us, you individually, so much that he was willing to die to fulfill God's promise to redeem mankind. It was super important to Jesus because Jesus understood that the Father had declared a promise that all men could gather to himself through his Son. So the good news is that I was lost, but now I'm found. I was guilty, but now I'm set free. I was, um, I was blind, but now I see. So the good news has a lot of facets to it, but the simple message of the good news is that Jesus is the one that fulfills everything in order for me to come to the Father with no strings attached other than belief in Jesus. 
So let's see what the next section uh, teaches us here in chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 15. We're going to start there. Kind of a, a side note, um, the, the scripture version that we use here at Bethel, the translation is the New Living Translation. And the reason we use the New Living Translation, uh, or me in particular, the, the reason we landed on it, is because it takes a lot of the guesswork out of the English language. If you've read um, some of the old translations, there's it's understandable, but it's almost King's English or Shakespearean, and so you've got to decipher some things. And so what we end up doing is spending so much time deciphering what it means in modern language that we lose application. And so I love the New Living Translation because the tagline is truth made clear. They take the original transcripts of, of the scripture in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, translate it into a speakable English, and we're very fortunate in the United States of America, really in the English-speaking world, to have multiple faithful translations that um, we have an overwhelming abundance of translations here in English. And so my concern is not that you read a specific one. My concern is that you read scripture. Just get in scripture. You need to get in scripture in order for the word to get in you. And so there's plenty of faithful translations that you can um, read that could align with your heart and the way you speak. And so please get in God's word. It is the most um, impactful thing you can do in your spiritual life is to know God's will through his word. Uh, so Paul continues reflection we saw last week with Carter, the previous week with Pastor Reuben, about Abraham and Moses. And so he's talking through these old Jewish patriarchs, and he's, and he's trying to explain why it's important to understand the difference between the two, and he's going to continue that thought in verse 15. And, and he's taking the reader, if you, if you remember, he's writing this book for the first century believer, and he's taking the believer to some logical questions. For example, why does the law, why do we need the law? If there's a promise that God made, what's the point? Or does the law take place of the promise? Or how do I remain faithful to the promise without ignoring the law? And so these are all logical questions that we're going to land right here in the middle of the book in chapter 3. So look at uh, verse 15. It says, Dear brothers and sisters. So just as a reminder, he's writing this specifically to people that know God. It doesn't mean that someone that doesn't know Jesus can't um, learn or even find Jesus here, but he's specifically writing to the church. He's specifically writing to people that are following Jesus, and so he says brothers and sisters. This is the reference over and over again in Paul's writing to the family of God. You can look at the, the family of God as a temple. You can look at the family of God as a body. You can look at the family of God as a, um, as a uh, building. You can look at it as spiritual stones. You can look at it as a flock. There's all sorts of different references, but the most common one that you see in the New Testament is the family of God, that we are brothers and sisters. There's something that happens the moment we say yes to Jesus we're adopted into a family, and we all automatically have family members. And that's the coolest thing about being a part of Bethel, is that we actually have one another that we get to work out the fruits of the Spirit, okay? So a lot of you already work them out on your way to church with your family in the back seat. They're crying, and when are we going to get there, and can I stop, or I have to pee, or whatever? And it's like you learn patience because you got a bunch of passengers, right? But even more so, you come to this family here, and there's all sorts of different people with different ideas and backgrounds and experiences. And then we really get to learn patience with every one another. You cannot learn the fruits of the Spirit without a family, the family of God. Verse uh, 15 continuing says right there, Here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. He's continuing the thought about the law and the promise. 
And so he's trying to bring an example, and he goes, hey, here's, a, here's an example of everyday things. There's an irrevocable, irrevocable agreement. Now, if you are an adult, you have kids, grandkids, maybe you have an estate, have a business, you know what it's like to have a contract. You sign a contract or a will, a last will and testament, in case something were to happen to you. If you were to go on a trip and you disappear, you have a will that's irrevocable to show your wishes for what's to come. And so he's trying to bring this example of an irrevocable agreement into everyday life. Verse 16, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that scripture doesn't say to his children as if it was meant, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. Think about this. Here's the key is that Abraham was a man that God chose, and he made an agreement, he made a promise to Abraham that would be fulfilled through a child. Now, here's where the, the pride and the national pride comes into the religious practices of Judaism, is that they were a chosen nation through Abraham that had all these descendants, and then you have you know Isaac, and you have Jacob, and then you have the 12 tribes, and then you have Abraham, that uh, is the, the patriarch of them all, and then you have Moses that comes along later, and the law was given to Moses. They were both important, and he's talking specifically about the promise that was made to Abraham. Let's keep reading, because this is very, very specific. If you remember, it, it actually reflects back on the promise that God gave Adam and Eve, the very first humans that had breath of life. He said, through your seed, or through a child will come salvation. And so back to Adam and Eve, and then to Abraham, and it continues through the genealogy there. Verse uh, 17. This is what I was them trying to say. The agreement, or this contract, or this irrevocable promise or trust, God made with Abraham, and it could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Okay, we've got to really dig back into the history. If you go into the book of Deuteronomy, even through the book of the law, you'll see this promise that came to Abraham. Here's what, here's what happened. There's a covenant. When we get together and we do a, a covenant or a trust or a contract, a bank account, buying a house, it doesn't matter what it is, there's a dotted line that you sign, but you don't sign it alone. Typically, who else signs right below that signature? It's a notary, maybe a bank, a responsible party, maybe a lawyer, maybe, a, maybe the other person you're coming to a contract with. It always takes two. You don't do a contract with yourself. You actually do a contract that's notarized by someone else saying this is legit. Well, here's what happened with Abraham and with God. God made a promise to Abraham and he told him to get two animals, and he told him to get a, a, a dove, and he said, hey, split them in half and set them next to each other. Typically, what would happen culturally is to make a promise, you'd make a sacrifice, and then the two individuals would pass through the sacrifice in the middle, and that would prove that, hey, this is a bonding agreement between us two. Well, what happened with Abraham was completely different because he set up the promise, he set up the sacrifice, and he fell asleep. And when he opened his eyes and looked, the Spirit of God alone was passing through the sacrifice. And so it was a one-person binding contract with God, and it had nothing to do with Abraham. 
It didn't matter if Abraham broke his, his promises to God. It didn't matter if Abraham went off and did something silly. The promise was all exclusively done on God, and that's it. So let's keep reading because he keeps talking about this. Why then was the law given? Why then is there the law? This is the question that we all should ask. It says right here, it was given alongside the promise to show people, that, to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful in, if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. So, if you think about this, this promise he did by himself, and he is God, and he bound himself in an agreement, a promise. You can look at it throughout the scripture, throughout Old Testament. God is merciful because he would look at humanity and he wanted to destroy them, but he'd remember his promise and he would not destroy them. He would look at uh, a Lot at Sodom and Gomorrah and he wanted to destroy them all, but then he would remember his promise to Abraham. And then you look further on when the Jewish people wanted a king and they rose a king up and then in his heart he would destroy them and yet he remembered his promise. And multiple times over and over and not only Moses, but the rest of the patriarchs actually told God to remember his promise. His promise that he would not, but he would redeem, okay? And so, it, and then it says right here where it says that a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. The original meaning in Greek is kind of, a, kind of unknown, but the bottom line is Jesus is the mediator, but Jesus is God. They are one. And so the promise was not only given, but also fulfilled by the one that gave the promise through Jesus. So it says right here in, in uh, verse 19, why then was the law given? If I, if I look at the law in my own life and I contrast the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Savior and the law given by Moses, the promise is all about, the, all about God, but the law is all about me. The promise offers life, but the law offers death and condemnation. The promise is all God-centered, and the law is self-centered. Because the law is something that diagnoses my problem. So, last week, or the last two weeks, we've used this chair as, a, as an instrument of faith. Um, I need a volunteer, someone easy. Maybe, Reuben, why don't you come up? <laughs> Who's back there asking to volunteer? Tyler. Oh, yeah, come on, Tyler. Yeah. Why not? Woo! You already got whistled at up here, so you might as well come up again. All right. Hey, Tyler. Don't sit down yet. All right. So here's the deal. I've got a bunch of tools in my hand, okay? So I've got a pulse oximeter, okay? I've got a blood pressure cuff. I've got a thermometer. I even have a code test. So what do all these have in common? They test for what? Okay, so they test for illness. So here's what, here's what we do. We want Tyler to, to have faith in Jesus, okay? Jesus says, come to me, cast your burdens on me, I'll give you rest. It's pretty easy. Actually, he says, just believe. That's all, that's all he says over and over again in the New Testament, in the Scripture. Just believe. And so if I say, hey, Tyler, you know what, you have a problem? You're like, huh? Dude, yeah, you're, you're sick. You're like, what? I, I feel fine. No, man, you're sick. You're totally sick. And then I take Jesus, and I'm like, you know what? You're sick. And I just start hitting Tyler with Jesus. Do, does Tyler ever have a chance to sit 
and experience rest when I'm actually using Jesus as a weapon against him? No. So then I take my pulse oximeter and I'm like, hey, this has a special detection of sin, like real special. And you don't know what sin is yet, but I'm going to tell you. Oh, man, look, look at this. Oh, we're actually going to test your pulse. Let's we'll make sure you're all right. All right, see if you have oxygen, all right? Okay. Dude, you're dead. <laughs> 97, that's pretty good. Now, your pulse is high, so you're nervous. I'm not nervous. Okay. <laughs> this says otherwise, man. Okay. So, I could be like, okay, your pulse, and then I'll take your temperature, and I'm like, ooh, it's 103, dude. Guess what this is? This 103 temperature is this thing called sin. Let me explain what sin is. Anytime you break God's command... Scripture says you fall short, that's sin. And you're like, cool, man, can I have that thermometer? And I say, sure. You take it, and you're like, thanks, and you walk away. So then he has this thermometer that tells him he's sick, and he puts it in his pocket, and all he does is walk around and say, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. What would we tell Tyler or anyone that had a fever and was obviously sick with some kind of infection and just walked around with a thermometer telling people he was sick. Go to the doctor. We would tell him to go to the doctor, but what would we call you for doing that? <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but okay. <laughs> Stupid. Crazy. Nuts. Right. If you're just walking around telling people, hey, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. Now, even worse, if I walked around and told people, Tyler's sick. Tyler's sick. Tyler's sick. And I just keep hitting you with the instrument that's diagnosing your sickness. But what if I said, hey, Tyler, you're sick, and there's a cure? What would you do? Tell me about the cure. Tell me about the cure. Hey, the cure is super simple. Trust this chair. Jesus Christ. Just trust it. What are you going to do in that moment? Not, not what you should do, but what are you going to do as a human being? Because you just got told that you're sick. Because the law, Scripture, a diagnosis instrument told you you were sick. So you have a couple of choices. What's one choice you have? Do nothing. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. You jerk. <laughs> I didn't know. Now you told me. That's just jerky. Number two, what could you do? Go to the doctor. So what if I told you it's as simple as sitting in this chair and it fixes everything? Does that seem too easy? Okay. So will you have a seat in this chair? Okay, have a seat. You're sick, Tyler. You're sick. Tyler, you're sick. What did I just do? I told him there was a cure, and he sat, and then I just kept beating him with the stick, reminding him how sick he was. Here, here's the thing that we like to do, and here's the problem of diagnosis, is all of us, when we're made aware of our sin, we can do a couple things. We can ignore it. We can have pride in it. I'm just the worst sinner of all. It's awesome. Or we could say, you know, I need an answer. I need a cure, and I'm going to sit here. But over time, here's the temptation. We Christians are real good at it. Dude, I think you should do a COVID test. I don't think you're right in your heart. So I think you just do a little COVID test. You know what? Your heart, we need to really check your blood pressure because I really feel like your heart's wrong. Bless your heart, dude. You're just wrong. So here, why don't you take this, and this will help you check your heart, all right? Now, your oxygen level, sometimes you just don't breathe, dude. You're just like too much. So let me, let, me, uh, let, me give you this, you know, let me give you this instrument. You can carry it around your neck, so that'll help you out. And then the last thing here, I've got multiple others, but these are, this will get you started. If you'll keep on to these, you'll please God all the time. If you just keep on to that stuff, keep diagnosing yourself, you'll, you'll actually please God. What's that going to do to you eventually? Yeah, let's take your temperature and your pulse now. 
Pulse is like 150, stressed out, trying to keep it right. I got to keep diagnosing. I got to check. The hardest spiritual discipline is realizing, let's see. Dude, why does it take so Oh, you actually got better, dude. You sat down. Rest. <laughs> ah, wow. Look at that. So you don't need that anymore, right? You don't need this either. You don't need this either. And you don't need this. Right? So how do you feel? Better. Because you're not holding on to all this stuff or tracking it, right? This is the issue. We as Christians are very good at setting up systems, setting up processes, setting up checkpoints or touch points, and then we end up wearing ourselves out. We no longer are resting in Jesus. It's the hardest spiritual discipline because my mind always wants to do. The enemy always tricks me that I'm not doing enough. And Jesus simply says, rest. Thanks, Tyler. Round of applause for this guy. Yeah. All right. Here's the thing. If we go around using the law to whip people, even believers, unbelievers, people that have never made a decision for Jesus, we're completely distracting them from the promise. We're completely walking them away from the cure. All we're doing is treating symptoms and diagnosing problems and never offering solutions. Verse 19. Why then was the law given? Great question. Why? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sin, but the law was designed to only last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave the law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and people. He was the guy that brought the message. Now the mediator is helpful um, if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, through Jesus, he's the mediator, gave the promise. Verse 21, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? And he says, absolutely not. If the law could have given us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. Clear as day. If you can fulfill every jot and tittle of the law, if you can walk through and actually do it, a few weeks ago we saw that if you're going to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. And it says right here, if you can actually do it, then the, the, the promise wouldn't have been important. It says, verse 22, but the scriptures declare that all, we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. At the end here, he says, simply put, as Moses was the mediator for the law, the only thing the law did was point out people's sin. That's all it did. You can't make it. You can't do enough. You can't fulfill enough. And it shouldn't have been a moment of shame or guilt. It should have been a moment of, okay, thank God for the Messiah, the Savior. Thank God for Jesus. As foolish as it sounds, when we try to be made right with God by obeying the law, we're taking the thermometer and we're bragging that it has diagnosed a fever and walk around judging others for not diagnosing themselves to be as good as we are. Literally, it says here in the original Greek, literally the whole world has been imprisoned to sin. The whole world. Why? When the law appeared, it pointed out people's deficiencies, and it enslaved the whole world. It is as if the whole world is drowning, and the only solution to life is Jesus reaching down in the water while we're drowning and pulling us out. 
It's the only solution. And the law only tells you that you're not breathing. The law tells you that you're not living. The law tells you you're blind. The law, the law tells you that you're lost. That's all it does. So once we are made aware of something, what are we supposed to do with that information? Once we're directed to a problem, how do we fix it? What's the solution? It, it actually happens all the time in our lives, like eating habits, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, paying taxes, speed limits, uh, blood pressure problems. Once we're made aware of the issue, what do we do? We have to find the solution. Don't just keep sticking with the, the diagnosis. Christy, we are so grateful for diagnostic and machines that would tell us that she has cancer. But if she would have just sat on that in January, unfortunately, she'd be dead today. But she looked for a solution, a cure, through medicine, modern medicine, prayer. You guys is with us. There was a lot of things that did it. But in the end, once you're made of aware of a problem, you've got to do something about it. Tim Keller put it this way. This is the purpose of the law. It shows us that we have not just fallen short of God's will, but it will require some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power requiring a rescue. It's not a simple fact of us doing a little better. We actually need someone to come and rescue us. We can't just sit in a diagnosis. We have to pursue the cure. Cursed turns to blessing. Cursed turns to redemption. And it all has to do with the way we view the law. So in our own personal lives, do we view the law as a roadmap or a weapon? Is the law in my hands a map to lead people to Jesus? Or is it a weapon that I wield to whip people into shape? My approach to the law determines my own life, because I can use it to whip myself too. Or I can use it to drive me to the chair to rest in Jesus. Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 10, I see the people of Israel, they have a zeal. They do all the right things, but the end of the law is Jesus. The end, the result of the law points right to Jesus. And have we sat in the chair? Have we rested? Let me pray for you this morning. We'll step into a time of worship. God, this morning as we think about Jesus and law, promise and process, procedures, but then the actual promise of God to give us rest. God, I, I, I know the temptation is to continually diagnose ourselves instead of running to the cure. God, this morning I have no doubt that in this room there's a mixture of, of experiences and beliefs, and, and some, God, have been scrambling for years trying to find rest in spiritual labor. My, my prayer this morning, God, is that your spirit would draw them in and, and for them to realize for the first time that Jesus paid it all. That Jesus did everything that needed to be done to appease God's command and God's law. And all we simply need to do is step up and rest. God, my friends that are here that are just going through struggle after struggle of trying to please God, I pray that today they would sit in the chair and throw away the diagnosis and realize they've been cured with Jesus. I pray that those that are here that have never called out to Jesus, said yes to Jesus, I pray that today they would and they'd be a part of this family. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for that day that you would not leave us alone. 
but you chased us down, showed us our need, and then drew us in with your love. Thank you for making us part of the family of God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and worship together.